Who is Jesus to you? This question was put to me somewhat bluntly by Bishop William Swing when I first met with him early on in the process of discerning my call to the priesthood. I was not expecting this question. And as a relatively young churchgoer, relatively new Episcopalian, I stumbled through some kind of answer, the upshot of which was basically, I'm not really sure. And yet, I was permitted to proceed with my process of discerning a call to holy orders and was eventually ordained a priest. About four or five years after that meeting with Bill Swing, I was on a mission trip with the youth group of the Church of St. John's in Oakland, the other St. John's. And I had accompanied their youth group on their annual summer mission trip, in this case, to New Orleans the summer after Katrina and the breaking of the levees and the flooding and destruction of so much of that city. This mission trip was organized by a much more conservative evangelical Christian organization, and many of the youth groups who participated in it came from that branch of our larger Christian family tree. The rector of St. John's in Oakland purposely chose that organization as the vehicle for their summer youth groups so that youth from a liberal Bay Area Episcopal church would encounter some other kinds of Christians out there in the world and have to see from their own experience that there are differences among us. During lunchtime every day on the work site in New Orleans, the crew at each site would break for lunch and we'd all been given a little packet of materials to participate in a lunchtime uh, prayer service, what they call devos, which is short for devotions. And the youth would take turns leading the devos. And the first day at the work site where I was, this gospel reading about Peter and Jesus and who do people say I am was the reading that we were given for reflection. And the young woman who led the discussion, a member of one of these youth groups from our uh, brothers and sisters in a more conservative denomination, theologically conservative, she read the passage, and then she read what I considered to be a series of leading questions that followed. Things along the lines of, if Peter says that Jesus is Messiah and is rewarded for it, then who do you say Jesus is? <laughs> and the young woman said, well, I definitely think Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the Son of God, and he came to save us from our sins, and if you believe in him, you have eternal life. And the next person in the circle, when it was their turn to answer, they said, I agree with Susan and also think that Jesus is the Messiah and is the Son of God and that he came to save us from our sins and if you believe in him, you have eternal life. And the third person also agreed with Susan and the fourth and the fifth. And then it got to one of the young people that came from the group at St. John's in Oakland. And she said, geez, I don't really know if Jesus is the Son of God or if he's my Savior. I don't really know if I could know those things. I don't know if it's possible for me to know whether he was the Son of God. But even if he was not, the things that he said and did and the stories about him recorded in Scripture impress me and make me want to listen to him and learn from him and to follow him because I think he sets a very good example for us all.
And I thought, God bless the Episcopal Church. (laughs) Because clearly this person had been formed in an ecclesial environment in which critical thinking and personal expression and the possibility of progress were regarded as signs of spiritual life. Many of our brothers and sisters in other Christian denominations are expected to agree and believe in advance everything that their church and the leaders of their church tell them to. I appreciate being part of a denomination in which authority, even my bishop's authority, does not tell me what I must believe, and in which I have no authority to tell you what to believe. But I am obligated to put the question to you, since it is pertinent. Who is Jesus to you? The answer will be as diverse as are the minds in this room. And that's not something to shy away from. That's something to embrace, because I think it's something along the lines of what Paul is getting at in his letter to the church in Rome. Paul writes to the church and describes the church as a body. And he talks about a body having many members. All the members have different functions, but they all form one body. And he compares that body of the group, the assembled church, he compares that body to the body of Jesus. Now, in Paul's day, in the first century, we know this because he says this in other places, it was scandalous, that's the word that Paul uses, scandalous to think of the body of Jesus as being the house of the life of the Spirit of God. But that's exactly what the Christian church proclaims. God, the universal God, the one true cosmic God, became a human and lived in a human body. Now, I don't know about you, but my body is not perfect. There are many things about my body which I appreciate and admire, and many things about my body which I do not. The older I get, the longer that list grows. (laughs) So when Paul talks about God, and when Christian Revelation talks about God in the body of Jesus, the reason it's scandalous is because we keep wanting to think of God as perfect and flawless and without blemish. There's plenty of scripture to support that idea, so there's no mystery about why we think that way. But if Jesus is in, if Jesus is God, and God is in Jesus, and Jesus has a body, and his body is like our body, what does that tell us about what God is like? That's why it's scandalous. It's equally scandalous, therefore, to think that the gathered assembly of people could represent the body of God precisely by being different from one another. As religious people, maybe just as people in general, our tendency is to want to gather and collect with like-minded folks. And as much as we try to be otherwise, that's still the case. If you look around the room here, you're going to see a fairly narrow expression of human diversity represented. That's okay. That's okay. But the Bible and Paul and Jesus are all telling us There's more. And in the Episcopal Church, we are given the opportunity explicitly to regard our differences as a virtue, which bind us together in a larger body, a more robust body, than we could be if we were all just alike, if we all agreed in advance exactly what it was that we believed and who Jesus was. This idea about Jesus and his divinity was scandalous also in the 4th century, 
when the institutional church was established under Constantine, and when the creeds were written, and there were arguments that went back and forth among bishops and theologians about who Jesus was and what his nature was. And one of the great minds of that era, Gregory of Nyssa, wrote in contradiction to one of his critics that it is precisely because Jesus is in an ordinary human body that we are saved through him. Gregory writes, to those people who would prefer to have imagined a pristine, perfect, blemish-free Jesus, he says, no, quite the opposite. Jesus was an ordinary person just like us. And in his ordinary humanity, he reveals what is divine in us. What is not assumed, Gregory wrote, is not saved. In other words, when God assumed a body in the person of Jesus, God assumed all the crap that comes with being a person and saved it. If God is already perfect and only needs us to be perfect before we can be saved, we don't need religion. And we certainly don't need Jesus. And we certainly can't find out who Jesus is. The matter of Jesus' divinity and humanity and of our divinity and humanity is scandalous still today. To offer an example from current events, which has been occupying a lot of my attention this past week, if we listen to Paul and believe him, and if we listen to Jesus and trust him, it has to be the case that young black men in poor communities all over this country whether they acted aggressively or not, whether they were larcenous or not, whether they had good manners or not, whether their pants sagged or not, are part of the body of Christ. Also, privileged white policemen who shoot young black men, whether in fear for their safety or not, whether with impunity or not, are also part of the body of Christ. Either we have a body or we don't. If we have a body, it's not a pure body. But it's exactly because it's not pure that God came to inhabit it so that it could be redeemed and made whole. And the way that it's made whole is by imagining that the body is bigger and more comprehensive and includes more parts than we can see or know in the place where we currently are. So God bless the Episcopal Church, which calls us together to be a body in one community, many voices, many minds, many ideas, many imaginations, but one body to represent to the world something about what it means to be the body of Christ. And I can't tell you what the answer is, but I have to keep asking you the question because it is pertinent and it is urgent. Who is Jesus to you?